four weeks tomorrow that I was playing a competitive game of doubles, tennis, three other pastors at what was supposed to be a pastor's retreat. And it was the last game, proved to be the last game anyway, of three hard-fought sets, and we were ahead, and I was serving to win the set, the match, and I hit a pretty good serve, and the other guy on the other team returned it, and I returned a uh, volley, hit it pretty deep, and the other man on the other team decided to lob back, and he hit a lob, and as I saw him hit it, I was filled with glee because he didn't hit it very deeply. It was a crummy lob, okay? It, it was a terrible thing. It had been 40-15. All we had to do was smash that lob back in the guy's face, and we won the set. And all the bragging rights for the, uh, for the little tournament we'd set up. So I went running forward with my racket correctly cocked, you know, having watched all of the games on TV. And I was going to spring up off my left foot, and I was going to smash that thing. And as I came down to spring off my left foot, my left kneecap exploded and my patella fractured, severing my patella tendon. And then as I was going down, I tried to correct myself with my right and I fractured my right patella, rupturing my right patella tendon. And I said, or they told me later that I looked like a folding chair that had collapsed on the court. And when your patella tendons rupture, there's nothing to keep your knees from bending all the way and your heels coming all the way back under your thigh, which is wow I was on the court. I'm not going to tell you what flashed through my mind at that point. I thought there's going to be some excruciating pain any minute now. And praise the Lord, it never came. My body just seized everything up. And some buddies gathered around me and they carried me to my van and a, a good pastor friend of mine uh, that I had actually discipled when he was in high school was in the back of the van and they held my knees together and they took me to emergency. And I had surgery a few days later on October 27th, double knee surgery, and my legs are no longer broken, they're fixed. But now I have these knee immobilizers on and I can't bend my knees. So that's why it's a little awkward to get up these steps. But I'm thankful that I'm here. A couple days ago, I was looking down at my legs. I've been doing a lot of that lately. And you know, it suddenly hit me, the adventure's pretty much over. For the first couple weeks, you know, you got to go to surgery, and you got to learn all about patellas and tendons, and uh, got to meet these great doctors and nurses, and and cards flooded in from everywhere and I got phone calls from all over the country as friends heard about it and people stopped by to give us pies and you know it was pretty cool I got to sit in a wheelchair for the first time in my life never had crutches and you know learned you know how you can pull up your pants with your crutches and do various things you know and and for the first couple weeks it was real exciting about three days ago that all ended I'm sitting there I'm saying, you know, this isn't that much fun anymore. And I began to resent my knees. I'll tell you why I resent my knees. Because since this has happened, it has been the defining event in my life. My knees now control my life. If I want to get up and get a drink of water, uh -uh, they say no. 
If I want to go somewhere, do something, even if I want to roll over in bed, my knees now are the slave driver of my life. They dominate me. And as I was given some thought to that, and I've had a lot of time to lay around and think. I've only been on my feet, so to speak, uh, for about four or five days. I've been laying there. And I thought, you know, this is just kind of brought to the surface that which has always been true in my life. That is this, that my body wants to set the agenda for my life. Not necessarily just my body, but using it as Paul does in Colossians 3.5, talking about your body as the things your body desires to do. And more importantly, the way your body and my body desires to do them. It wants to dominate me. It wanted to dominate the Apostle Paul, didn't it? What did he say? 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I have to buffet my body. Now, some of you think that's buffet my body. It's not. I have to buffet my body and what? Make it my slave. Because if I don't, I know that my body, that is that within me, not just flesh, I'm not getting into some platonic dualism here, but that which Paul uses the word body to refer to, that part of me that is as yet unregenerate, it desires every day to be dominant over me and over you. And it is a constant struggle to live out the redeemed life in as yet unredeemed flesh. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7 when he says, There is in me that which rebels against that which is in me. Right? Who I really am as a son of God wants to please God, but who I am in this body of flesh. Man, this microphone's loud. Or am I yelling? Am I yelling? I don't want to be a yeller. I used to sit in that, those uh, bleachers back there and guys would come to chapel and, you know, guys who come to chapel here and speak, they, you know what we think. We all want you guys all to walk out and say, wow, that, well, that guy was just fantastic, wasn't he great? And so we all sit up late at night thinking how we can be the best possible chapel speaker you've ever heard. Uh, I really didn't have time to do that. So, but I certainly don't want to be a yeller because I used to hate those guys that yelled. So if I start yelling again, you just kind of go like this and I'll quit yelling. <laughs> but that part in me that's unredeemed, it wants to carry the rest of me around and lead me around on a chain. How are we going to deal with this? Well, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to look at a text that is as familiar, perhaps, in your mind as any text. And I've been looking at it in a fresh, new way, at least for me, over the past three weeks. Because it is there in that text that I am urged, that I am conjoled, that I am graciously and carefully exhorted and beseeched by someone who considers me a brother and who knows far more than I will ever know, theologically, he has come down out of the teaching spot of Romans into the, into the audience and has sat down next to me and he's put his arm around me and he says, I urge you therefore, brother, I've got some advice for you with regard to your body. That which your body is and that which your body longs to do and that term that speaks about all that is who you are. And you need to commit spiritual suicide. 
You need to offer your body up a living and holy sacrifice. And we're going to talk about that. Romans has been called the key event in the Bible. The key book in the Bible. You're wondering why I'm... I can't find my notes. Here they are. I almost had to preach what I preached yesterday morning. Tyndale said, The key to Scripture is justification by faith. The door to the epistle is the Romans. Is Romans. Romans is a light and a way into the whole of Scripture. Luther said, Romans is a bright light, sufficient to give light unto all Scripture. Romans is the monumental book in the New Testament, in my estimation, because it speaks to the fundamental issues of life. Now, primarily, when you hear somebody talk about Romans, what do you think? Justification by faith alone, right? And that's pretty much what Paul has done in the first 11 chapters. But verse, uh, chapter 12 actually talks to us about how someone who has been justified by faith alone is to live the justified life. And so he comes to Romans 12, and he says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your rational service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. I want to look at three preliminary concerns with this verse. The first one is the word, therefore. And I know every pastor has to say it. I'm going to say it. When you see a therefore, you go and you figure out what is there. Well, this, therefore, is there for a very important reason. Paul is about to ask you and me to do something that we would rather not do. Okay, I'm not, I don't have to be a mind reader to know that you would rather live like the world and still be in, in God's kingdom. That's kind of a that's, that's standard preloaded software in us. We come that way. And so Paul has spent 11 chapters showing us that our response to God when he asks for all that we are to be all for him needs to be driven out of not obligation necessarily, but out of response of enjoyment and love. Now in Romans, Paul has basically set out to answer the question, how can a man be right before God? Pretty important question. Well, in answering that question, the first thing he has to do is show that man isn't already right before God. And so in chapter 1, he says that the gospel is the power of God that can bring man to be right before God. And all men need to be brought to be right before God because no man seeks after God. Everybody is like an open sepulcher. And by the time you get to chapter 3, he has that great soliloquy where he quotes from all over the Old Testament and shows that both Jews and Greeks are despicable. Like the young man who came and gave his testimony. By the way, I, I don't want to be correcting anybody all the time, but you're not filthy, vile, and wicked. You used to be. Right? But part of you is the Son of God, who's being made in the likeness of God. And so we are still entrapped in this flesh, but who we really are as children of God has been redeemed. Praise the Lord. And so Romans, after he proves that uh, everybody needs Christ... Then he has to answer the next question, well, how can you get right with God? Can you do it through your own efforts? And so in chapter 
last part of chapter 3 and chapter 4, he says it can't be through the law. It has to be by faith alone. And he uses an illustration. He uses Abraham, which is very interesting. He says Abraham believed God and it was what? Imputed to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, the, the neat thing about using Abraham is that Abraham was accounted as righteous before Sinai, right? Before the law. And so Paul uses Abraham and later David as illustrations of Old Testament men who were justified on the basis of faith. And then in chapter 6 through 8, he talks about how this life of faith is lived in the midst of yet as unyet unredeemed flesh. And he ends with that great benediction in chapter 8 that nothing can pull those for whom Christ has died and to whom this justification and this righteousness have been imputed, nothing can pull them away from God. And then you have that big question that explodes in the mind of the audience and it says, well, if that's true, Paul, if God never forsakes his own, then how do you explain Israel? Because it looks like Israel's been forsaken and so Paul takes chapters 9 through 11 to show that what has happened to Israel is not an aberration in God's plan, but rather it is a demonstration that God's righteousness, that his justification, that his choice of anybody has always been on the basis of his sovereign choice and Israel is but an illustration of that. Well, then he gets to the end of Romans chapter 11 and he says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, I beseech you to entrust all that you are to the only one of whom it can be rightly said, from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, it's not so much of a sacrifice to entrust all that you are to the only one who can do all things, who is the source of all things, who has already redeemed you from the pit, who has given you all kinds of glorious blessings, both temporal and eternal, and has given them all to you, even though you are completely unworthy of them, based solely on his sovereign choice and Christ's love for you. He says, okay, therefore, on the basis of all that, boy, that should be the natural response. After all, he has demonstrated for you. I urge you, therefore, brethren. I've already mentioned that he uses this word urge. You know, in the first 11 chapters, you get the, you kind of feel like you're in school when you're reading Romans 1 through 11. And Paul is up behind the lectern, you know, and he's, he's lecturing. But here, he steps aside, which I can't do, and he walks down these stairs and he sits down right here and he puts his arm around this guy and he says, you know what, brother? Having said all that, now I want to tell you this. This is where the rubber meets the road. Now you've got to make this objective theology walk on all fours. I'm going to beseech you, brother, by the mercies of God, not just because of what God has done for you, but by His continuing mercies, through the power of His continuing comfort and His presence. Now he really gets to it. I want you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What in the world does that mean? I think he's talking about the idea of idolatry here. I think the great problem addressed in verse 1 
is that we do not want to worship God. We want to have God and help have Him kind of bless us as we worship or pursue that which our bodies want to pursue. What's the solution? Well, you've got to consider your body dead. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3. Consider it dead. Here he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. The word present here is a word that's technically used for just presenting a sacrifice. It was used when Jesus was presented in the temple. It was used when Paul presented converts. It was used when Christ presents his church. It's already been used in Romans, in, in Romans chapter 6, where he says, don't present the members of your body for unrighteousness, but present them unto God for righteousness, for holiness. It denotes a recognizable and public presentation. It's not some hidden undercover thing. It is a presentation of something that is verifiable through the action of presenting it. Now here Paul says, I want you to present your bodies. And at the time that this was written in Greek philosophy, there had been a, a deprecation of the body. The body was nothing. It was the mind. The greatest ethical ideal was to have a pure mind. In fact, it was to free the mind from the body and its degrading influences. Nobody wanted the body. The uh, rise of incipient Gnosticism had kind of told us that the body was just nothing. Just don't matter with it. Don't deal with it. Indulgence of the flesh was fine because it was mental purity that was needed. And Paul kind of confounds the philosophers. Reminds me of Pascal. He said that uh, philosophers confound common people, but Christians confound philosophers. And Paul here does that. And he says, no, present your bodies a living sacrifice. That word that identifies all that is in you. As Jonathan Edwards said, all that I am for him. Now, what's a sacrifice? Well, obviously... The idea of sacrificing something in the Old Testament had to do with honor. It had, in our day, when we say we're going to sacrifice, I remember when I was here as a student and we had a, a young lady who went as a, as a short-term missionary one summer to Hawaii. And uh, we said, oh, you're sacrificing for Jesus. You know, as though that was really a hardship. We think sacrifice means hardship. But in the Old Testament, sacrifice meant honor. It meant privilege. We are bringing that which we are privileged to have and we are honoring the one to whom we are presenting it. It was a glorious thing. There was ceremony that accompanied it. And Paul is here saying, take that which you are and present it in total, 100% to God as a sacrifice. The other thing is when you sacrifice something, you renounce ownership in it. It's not yours anymore. Now, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm yelling again, aren't I? I apologize. But I want you to understand, folks, this is the standard. This is what is expected. That you give all that you are to God. That you renounce complete ownership of who you are, and you give it to God. Now, we may not live that way, but let's be honest enough to say that's the standard. And let's not feel overly joyful about our spiritual condition if we are well below the standard. 
Let's not try and rationalize that since we're better than our roommate, that we're okay. Let's be honest and say, that's the standard, 100% all that I am for God. Okay? Now, if you live that way, you're a fanatic. If you live that way, you'll be persecuted by some of the people. But God's plan has also worked it out that if you live that way, some will see your good works and glorify God in heaven. And that's the good side of it. So, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Renounce ownership in your life. Say, all that I am is for Him. Now, what's the characteristic of this sacrifice? It's living. That's that old oxymoron word, huh? Jumbo shrimp, sweets, sorrow, USC football. I won't tell you I'm a Washington Husky fan. This isn't the year. But we're coming. What is a living sacrifice? Do you think Paul understood how that would set with his audience? You see, we've read this text so many times, it doesn't shock us anymore. The Bible ought to shock you. You ought to read it slow enough so that when you see living sacrifice, you go, Whoa! Paul, why doesn't your head explode? That can't be. A living sacrifice is this. It's If you look at your life in linear, on a, on a I don't even know what I'm saying, on a, uh, a line like this. Is that linear? I'm trying to impress you that I know some terms. I really don't know what they mean. A line this way, okay? And you take all of the seconds of your life that are stacked up and you lay them sideways so that each second of your life is next to each other. A living sacrifice says that you can go in and somebody can go into your life and go like this and take out a chunk of the moments of your life and hold them up and they will be an unbroken testimony to the Lordship of Christ in your life. That's what a living sacrifice is. You take 10 minutes out of my morning, any 10 minutes. You take 15 minutes out of any afternoon hour of my life. You take 30 minutes out of my 9 to 11 o'clock slot at night and you hold it up to the standard of God and it testifies that the Jesus Christ is Lord of that life. That's a living sacrifice. It's not a one-time thing. Paul says, I die daily. This is an ongoing, never-ending process that never gets easier. And I will remind you that all that God requires, He also enables. He expects a living sacrifice. Now, there's another word that describes it. It's holy. You know, in the Old Testament, they couldn't just bring any old thing. Except some of us, we do that, don't we? Okay, Lord, it's Sunday, and I have to sing, or I have to speak, or I have to do something at church, and, uh, okay, Lord, I really need you to bless my efforts now. I'm going to present myself to you. Is it holy? John Flavel said, What health is to the heart, holiness is to the soul. Is what you are going to present to God holy? Peter, he blows us all out of the water. He says, you know, if you call this one father, who impartially judges, and conduct yourself with fear, and he says, be holy in what? 
all your behavior. Oh, there it is. Again, we have to at least be honest enough to admit that that's the standard. Radical, conspicuous, consistent holiness. Now, if you're not going to live up to that standard, at least don't rationalize that the standard can be brought down to where you want to live. At least admit that God's standard is up here. And if your life is down here, admit that you need to work. And you need to rest. And you need to do something to get up to the standard. See, I'm tired of rationalization. I'm tired of, of Christians living like the world and writing books about how they're great Christians. Look, if you don't want to live up to God's standard, then don't tell anybody you're a Christian, okay? Either change your life or change your name. I'm yelling again. Sorry. Let's go on. This holy, acceptable, holy and living sacrifice also has to be well-pleasing to God. And he says, by the way, this is what worship is, if I can paraphrase. There's a lot of going on about worship. We have worship leaders, worship songs, worship bands, worship folders, worship choruses, worship services, worship centers. The central place that God meets with man is in you through Jesus Christ. The tabernacle, the temple, is now Jesus Christ tabernacling with us. Right? That makes worship an everyday experience of every Christian. When you come together on Sundays or at chapel or whatever and you have a worship service, it is nothing more than the combined activity of what all of us are supposed to be doing individually throughout our lives. And Paul is here saying that worship is just another way of saying, God, you get everything that I am all the time. That's worship. That is your reasonable, it may be translated spiritual, I think it's better understood reasonable. Paul is saying, if you have the opportunity to give all that you are to the one from whom, through whom, and to him whom are all things, why, then why wouldn't you? Especially if this one has fitted you for heaven. Especially if this one has taken care of your sin. Especially if this one, in a manner that only he could do, has given you a new heart, a new mind, has given you the word of God, has given you the church, has given you all the means of grace by which you can become conformed to his son. Why wouldn't you? It's reasonable. Again, Pascal said, there are only two kinds of, re of people that can be called reasonable. Those who love God with all their hearts because they know him, and those who are seeking God with all their hearts because they do not know him. Those are reasonable people. And Paul is saying it's reasonable for you and me to give up ownership of who we are. And don't be conformed to this world. This isn't an add-on. It's the second problem. If it's not idolatry, Satan can't get you to substitute a different object for your worship, then he's going to work on conformity and try to get the nature of your worship to be conformed to the world. A.W. Tozer said, We are sent to bless the world, but never to compromise with it. 
Our glory lies in a supernatural withdrawal from all that is built on dust. I like that. Did you get that? Not being conformed to the world meaning, means having a desire to withdraw from everything that's built on dust. How do we conform to the culture? i got a few things written down here. I know when I was in college, it was very hard to get a credit card. I understand now that's all changed. I understand that there are credit card companies that come out here and try and get you guys to get all these credit cards. I used to be a chaplain of a university football team, and they were giving away free airline tickets if you would get a, a credit card with them. I just want to tell you guys, from one who's been there and somehow has gotten out, that running up credit card charges and living beyond your means and, and kind of taking money that isn't yours and consuming it on your lusts is conforming to the world in a very real way. Don't do it. Save yourself the grief and don't buy anything you can't afford. I think that's a place where we as a Christian community have conformed to the world. Because I do not believe that conformity here to the world is just the, the independent individual sins that we have. What I think Paul is talking about is a mindset where we adopt something totally into our lifestyle that God hates. And I think this whole idea of living beyond your means and being greedy and consuming things, materialism, and using credit, that's, God doesn't like that. That's being conformed to this world. Finding more pleasure in, in your own pursuits than in God is another way. Let me read you a quote. It's time for a quote, don't you think? You with me? I know, I've only got five minutes left. Don't worry, I'll finish. Okay? It's okay. From the very beginning, we approach prayer with a grave misconception. And then here's the part I want to key in on. Our selfishness knows no bounds. In more or less naive self-love, we look upon everything in our environment with which we come into contact as our agencies, as things which exist for our sakes, as something for us to make use of and utilize to our own advantage. We think and act as though everything, inanimate things, plants, animals, human beings, even our own souls were created for the purpose of bringing gratification to our selfish desires. In other words, he's saying, we're the center of the universe. And we make no exception of God. As soon as we encounter God, we immediately look upon Him as another means of gaining our own ends. That's conforming with the world. That is seeing that God exists for us, that everything exists for me, which is diametrically opposed to what Paul has said in Romans 12.1, that all that I am exists for him. So you see that conformity with the world is the opposite of presenting your bodies, your lives, a living sacrifice. And yet we get caught up in it. I'm going to suggest to you that maybe we are looking at this verse and we need a new word. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Where it says transformed, with your uh, permission, I'm going to substitute the word reformed. The Reformation gave us a great slogan. It said, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. The church reformed and reforming. You see, just like my knees, they needed to be reformed 
So you and I, individually, every day, in order to make our bodies a living sacrifice, in order to have an unbroken series of minutes, any number of which testify to the Lordship of Christ in my life, we must be completely and consistently reforming. We must always be bringing our lives back to the measurement of the Scriptures. We must be reforming, reforming, reforming. Taking that which gets polluted, taking that which gets diluted, and purifying it, reforming it. That's what Paul is talking about here. Don't be conformed to the world, but rather be reformed. And how do you do it? By renewing the mind. The mind will precede religious experience, but it is never separated from religious experience. Okay? We're justified by faith alone, but justifying faith is never alone. There is a desire, I think, on the part of some in order to escape this whole realm of experiential Christianity, to turn our backs on it and move over here to only objective word. And down through the history of the church, that has had the effect of, like Perot would say, the great sucking sound, as it sucks the vitality out of the church. There are some who would say, well, because that's happened, we must turn our back against or away from objective truth as a means for unity. And our unity will be based only on shared experience. And again, in history, there's been this great sucking sound as the stability and the faithfulness of the church has been sucked away because its foundation and its anchor has been severed. And yet Paul is here saying we must have both. But there is a logical order. And in my last 45 seconds, I will tell you that it is the renewing of the mind that brings us then to that place where we all want to be, where we can discern what God's will is, that you may prove what the will of God is. By the way, that will is good, it is well-pleasing, and it is complete. There's no holes in it, there are no gaps in it, there are no valleys in it, that when you present your body a living sacrifice and you renew your mind so that your daily life is not in conformity with what the world wants, then what Paul is saying is that you are in the arms of the one that it can only be said of from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, do you believe the Bible is true? you believe it speaks the truth? If you do, then what I've just shared with you from the book of Romans comes like a Lord on your life. You can't walk out of here and say, well, you know, I've heard other views. This is the truth, as far as I know. And we are now held captive by it. As Luther said at the Diet of Worms, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. I can't do anything else. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me.